You're listening to The Lit Review, a podcast where organizers interview organizers about books. In this moment of urgency, mass political education is key. We recognize that political study is not always accessible for a variety of reasons. Our goal with The Lit Review is to be a resource that brings out key information from relevant books to the masses. Think Sparknotes in podcast form. I'm one of your hosts, Monica Trinidad, and thank you for listening to The Lit Review. On today's episode, we'll be speaking with Tess Razor, organizer with Asada's Daughters and teacher in Chicago's Parkway Gardens, and Quinn Rollins, social activist, organizer, essayist, and poet. We chatted with Tess and Quinn about I've Got the Light of Freedom, the organizing tradition and the Mississippi freedom struggle by Charles M. Payne, originally published in 1995. The book offers an in-depth history of the early civil rights movement in the South, highlighting the work of Ella Baker, Septima Clark, and everyday community members doing on-the-ground work in places like Greenwood, Mississippi. Today we have Tess Razor, who is a great friend of mine, who is an amazing activist, an amazing organizer. I think Dominique might know her. I don't know. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, I think Maybe. So, right? You know, we uh, might be in a group together. Yeah, I'm not really sure. Asada's daughters or something around. like that? Yeah, I don't yeah. even know. Yeah. Maybe. They're pretty cool. I don't know. Hi, maybe, maybe Tess can tell us about them. And then we also have Quinn Rollins. And Quinn is an organizer. He does all the things. Uh, born and raised in Chicago, and we're really excited to have him on the show. So, yeah. yeah. So, we're going to start off with a question about you. So, this pod- this other podcast that I listen to, called Another Round, opens their interviews uh, with the question of, who are you, what do you do, and why? And I think that's a great question, and wanted to ask both of you to answer those three. So, who are you, what do you do, and why? Go ahead, Quinn. I insist. You go ahead. <laughs> what do people say? Age before beauty? So my name, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> so I, uh, I, I'm an organizer. I've been organizing since, I would say 2005, since Katrina hit. Um, I'm just a believer in doing the type of social justice work that I would want people to do for me. And for me, that means really dealing with systems. I'm also, I, I went to law school three years ago, uh, so I do policy and litigation, so. Cool, cool, cool. Thank you. Tess? Um, one of the many things I have in common with Quinn is uh, Hurricane C- Katrina helped politicize me as well into organizing. I was in high school at the time, um, and I'm a teacher, um, and so one of the many reasons uh I've learned so much from this book is the is really how they unpack and um, emphasize the significance of why it was so important to organize young people um, mm-hmm. and your, organize young people who were the most mm-hmm. directly affected um, by uh, systemic mm-hmm. institutionalized racism. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to just get into first, what do you find relevant about this book in this moment? You touched about it. You touched on it a little bit already with like young people and, and how important it is to center those most directly impacted, right? So can you just, can you get, get more into that? Um, yeah, so this book is a really good, maybe not a tool, but a, a map for organizers to use to see, um, to see how an organizing campaign was successfully laid out and led by young black people mm-hmm. and specifically young, mostly poor rural black people um, in Mississippi mm-hmm. in the early 1960s uh, mm-hmm. with a lot of the, the work discussed in here is mostly the work of SNCC. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and what does SNCC stand for? The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Okay, cool. Um, and the re- I, there are many reasons why I think it's relevant today. I, I think today a lot of people um, are quoting Ella Baker mm-hmm. and referencing Ella Baker without really understanding of what her organizing mm-hmm. strategy was and what her role was in the civil rights movement. And as we know, or as many people know, Ella Baker was um, a pivotal person in the founding of SNCC. Um, and she uh, really believed in in door knocking and canvassing and meeting people where they, where they were at and asking what they needed the most in their communities mm-hmm. um, and really developing leadership out of those people. Um, and this book really lays out their strategy from everything from what they did when they were door knocking and the specific questions they were asking mm-hmm. people 
um, to what their political ideologies were, to what they did when they had different political ideologies than those people uh, that they were trying to organize. Um, and yeah, I think it's particularly relevant today when we're at a time when I think especially in Chicago there's been a lot of focus and a lot of um, valorizing of big direct actions. But what is particularly sticks out to me in this book is uh, how direct action is described. And you know, direct action is a conversation with a neighbor or mm -hmm. um, for them direct action was the ability to try and go and register to vote, right? They were, their, their campaigns were very specific. Um, but I think it's a really important um, resource to have today as we're at an interesting moment in our contemporary mm -hmm. organizing. Mm -hmm. That's a really great point of talking about direct action and like how there's many different definitions of it, right? Like a lot of people think of direct action as like, oh, get in the streets and like get arrested, right? Mm -hmm. But like that's not all that direct action is. Like direct action is door knocking, like you said, that's in the book. So how, and this is for both of you, how does the book define organizing, right? Because a lot of us, a lot of us, I think, sort of conflate what activism is and what organizing is and like sort of get them all mixed up. And so can you just tell us how the book actually defines organizing and, 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 um, and a little bit about how it differentiates from activism, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that would be really interesting, especially because I find that we use the word a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're used to being around other organizers, you'll kind of just throw it around. And then I see, I spend a lot of time on Twitter and I see people just saying, oh, you need to be organizing, you need to be organizing. But like, what does that really mm -hmm. mean? And if we're really trying to bring in our communities to be engaged more in this work, what is it that we're trying to do, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we can't mm -hmm. just throw around jargon all the time, right? So... Yeah, what, how does this book define organizing? There are chapters that lay out the specific kinds of questions and that they were asking people, and mm -hmm. three of them were um, that they would, basic questions that they would do in citizen school. The book lays out what freedom schools and what citizen schools mm -hmm. um, looked like at the time. What does the majority culture have that we want? What does the majority culture have that we don't want? Mm -hmm. And what do we have we want to keep? The people who were members of SNCC and the people who were trusted in SNCC were deeply embedded in the communities. Mm -hmm. um, this book specifically focuses on Greenwood, Mississippi mm -hmm. uh, during that time. I think it's important people read this book so they can get like a narrative of like the diverging schools of thought that it mm -hmm. operated, right? So, um, you know, when Bob Moses gets down there for Freedom Summit, they talk a little bit about that. You know, he gets down there for... 19, he was the first, I mean, he was basically the first staff person to go down there. And it was important, like, who he met when he got down there. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about, like, young folks getting involved in, in the work, they may be talking about, they may be thinking they talk about organizing and it looks a lot different than what somebody else may perceive. Mm -hmm. So he gets down there and he essentially meets two people. One was Ella Baker, the other person mm -hmm. was King. And he, what he talks about is, like, how dismissive King was to him in terms of being this young black guy. It wasn't like this was like, this was like the prototypical like black guy that you would assume King would want to invest in, right? This guy like Harvard educated. He's like like a chemist, a mathematician. Mm -hmm. He's doing a PhD program. If there was any black person you would think King coming from the middle class would want to invest in, he would do that. But that wasn't like his MO. Mm -hmm. um, and Ella Baker, he, she sat down and talked with him, mm -hmm. um, really helping like to get his understanding of, like his narrative and what he wanted to accomplish, like mm -hmm. him developing his leadership skills and you know, one of these chapters, the segment is called Discovering Local Leadership, right? Because mm -hmm. ultimately that's what he would have to do in turn if he was going into Mississippi. Um, and when you think about, like, how complex this was, right, it's like to really go into Mississippi to build a type of grassroots effort is going to do direct action and second, like, real voting rights work. It's, it's the type of work where uh, if you aren't invested in, like, doing work and, you know, Gulf Coast, Mississippi, um, it's not going to be sustainable. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I got a chance to meet Moses like a few different occasions, and he just, uh, me and Tess were texting about this. He's not like, he barely talks. It's hard. You can't even find an interview. There's like one interview mm. you can find with this guy. Mm. Um, and he, he basically drove Freedom Summer 1964. Mm. He's um, heavily quoted in reference throughout this book. Mm. Yeah. So one of the things that you kind of said that stuck out to me is that, um, and I can't remember exactly how you phrase it, or you phrased it, um, I'm trying not to butcher what you said, but from my understanding is that you really need to be in a community, you need to be building with people, you need to 
try to do something that is sustainable, like the goal is sustainability, right? Um, how do you do that, right? Uh, like, how do you build sustainability, especially maybe if you're not from a particular community? Um, how do you build sustainability? So that's one aspect of it, right? If you're maybe like, we're both live in Chicago, but I live on one side of the city and I'm trying to organize in a different side of the city. Um, and then two, how do you build sustainability if the community you're trying to organize in um, doesn't have a lot of resources and then maybe you as an individual also don't have a lot of resources? Like, I find that a lot of people I talk to are just like, well, what can I do, right? Like, I don't have a lot to give um, and we don't have a lot, right? So can you, can you, either of you or both of you maybe speak to that? Um, so I think, I think nowadays people say the beloved community a lot. I know it's referenced heavily um, in any literature, anything you read on the Mississippi, um, organizing in Mississippi, in the whether it was in the Delta or in the hills. And people, I, I, it's an interesting question of sustainability and um, capacity today when people who are trying to organize in rural Mississippi at that time were faced with you know, the horrors of the clan or their neighbor or if they were sharecroppers, the plantation owner. Um, and yet they would risk, they would lose their jobs, they would lose their homes in just going to attempt to register to vote or to go to be a, become a member of the NAACP. Um, and so in response to that, part of being part of that beloved community, organizers and just uh, people who, whether they consider themselves organizers or not, mm -hmm. black people who are doing black liberation work at the time, whether cognizant of it or not, um, created support networks for each other. They would open up their homes, they'd provide food for each other. It's very hard to do the work if like, you don't like listening. You know, like, like, it's like fundamental things that mm -hmm. some people just don't like doing. Mm -hmm. um, it's made them really successful in other spaces, but mm -hmm. not in the type of work that actually allows you to really, really build a base. You gotta like go on a lot of things that are boring, People saying a lot of fucked up things that you don't agree with, uh, but what that allows you to do is allows you to build relationships with people so that ultimately they can hear a di an alternative analysis. Mm -hmm. But even more so, I think it allows you to like really identify the issues that folks mm -hmm. care about. So when I say like I went to Katrina, I originally went down there to rebuild homes, and it, I'll never forget the it was this woman who was there, and I tell folks every now and then this story, but. It was this woman who was basically like, I was rebuilding a home, and she was like, yo, Quinn, I don't plan on living down here anymore. Like, what you, I went down there to rebuild a home. She was like, I've been in long-term unemployment. I live three blocks away from where the levee broke. Mm -hmm. My kids attend one of the worst performance schools here. The nearest grocery store is three miles away. She was like, why would I stay here? Mm -hmm. to, to have the gumption that you're going, some college students going to come down here and rebuild my roof. Mm -hmm. uh, the trauma alone away from living. You know, like, so I was like, what like how many times in my life have I gone into spaces without even talking to people about mm. the work that needs to be done like and from a lot of work it's not even a negotiation mm. with poor communities mm. right mm. like we're doing the same thing that developers do and politicians do mm. it's like to have a gumption to go into places where people have been there for three four generations mm. and not negotiate with them speak with them talk with them because they don't share your analysis it's mm -hmm. a lot of it's a lot of arrogance mm -hmm. um so i'll say that um the fact of the matter is a lot of these folks were living in people's homes they were not being paid well they were broke uh and uh the community found their work so important that they would house them mm -hmm. right they would cook dinner mm -hmm. and blah blah and it's like are you doing the type of work where folks in Roseland would do that for you, mm -hmm. uh, or Inglewood would do that for you. If you're not, you need to ask your, yourself the question why that is. And I think too, people seem like when that is raised, well, it was people bring up, well, it was easy, it was less radical to organize around voting registration, and that's just not true. Mm -hmm. Like at the time, mm -hmm. to register to vote in rural Mississippi or even in Jackson. Mm -hmm. Even in, I mean, Natchez is a little bit bigger, and like other in bigger mm -hmm. places in Mississippi, it was a very radical thing for a black person to go and re register to vote, and it was something that a lot of people, they would have, they they had in SNCC in their volunteer handbook a list of things that people would say over and over to say that they didn't want to register to vote, mm -hmm. 
And what the SNCC volunteers would then do would show up to that same house of the person who's like, no, I don't need to register to vote. Um, I, I'm fine. I, why do I need to? I'm just, you know, a black person. Whatever it was. Um, and they would show up to the same house time and time again, figure out, well, what, what do you think about this? When's a good time? Can I talk to you again? Um, and we're just persistent, not in a way that was condescending and not mm -hmm. in a way that was demeaning to those people, but in a way that was earnest. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I think proximity, what, what this book specifically focuses on is a campaign that was rooted in proximity mm -hmm. and in listening, as Quinn was saying. Mm -hmm. So if, like, if one person was going to, that's really busy, that's organizing, doing lots of work, if they were if they were going to read one chapter that would tell you a lot about this book or like or like that is the most important chapter to read what chapter would that be um, yeah and then also if you can't answer that my second question is um, one of the chapter titles is um, slow and respectful work and and that resonated with basically what all the stuff that you were just saying right now but if you could elaborate more on either that chapter or like what what slow and respectful work what does that mean what does that look like well, I'll start with the question around um, what chapter I will read. Uh, chapter two is called Testing the Limits, Black, Act Black Activism in Post-War Mississippi. I'm just always, like, trying to think about, like, what pe gets people in the game. Mm. And, um, like, a lot of folks who led the civil rights movement came out of the war, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, Mega Evers was a World War II veteran, right? So... It's like, it was a whole different new era, like, new sense of citizenship. A lot of the folks were killed by the police. Mm -hmm. World War veterans came back, was like, I'm trying to work at the hospital now. Mm -hmm. They're like, no, you're not. Um, so, I think what we've seen since, you know, really since Trayvon is like folks demanding a new sense of citizenship, right? And I think that we have a unique history of the way folks plug in, and it looks a lot different in different spaces, mm -hmm. but... I imagine if you talk to a lot of organizers now and you met somebody who came back from the war or fought in Iraq, there might be a negative conversation in terms of like what you might perceive their, their analysis. Mm -hmm. But like at that time, folks who had gone and fought for their country and things of that nature were, were like the first people to like get engaged on a real mm -hmm. grassroots level. And it, what it says is like, in our history, folks coming into this work looks um, it's multifarious mm -hmm. um, and we everybody has a might have a story that where, where they should be demanding something different mm -hmm. so I think chapter three give light and the people will find way the roots of organizing tradition introduces uh, the reader to Ella Baker and Clark really zooms in on their ideas of in the, their challenge of what leadership was mm -hmm. and of what leadership actually was and meant in the early 60s uh, freedom movement mm -hmm. um, and challenges or maybe not even challenges but disproves that the role that the SCLC and the and church leaders actually had in the movement which is much more minimal than mm -hmm. you know we get in a world where we only have MLK Day mm -hmm. um, yeah. and then the other chapter that the one that you brought up was slow and respectful work chapter 8 it's mm -hmm. called uh, organizers and organizing um, and I don't want to say lays out the strategy because this again, like the strategy was based on what the people were saying. The goal was to get people registered to vote mm -hmm. and to actually be able to vote without getting shot or turned beaten or harassed when you went to do so. Um, but it really lays out lays out a lot of the volunteer guides and questioning um, and. It's funny, I think today when people turn to a chapter that's about organizers and organizing, they might expect to see, uh, this is how we do direct action, this is how we do this. But mm -hmm. the chapter focuses on how you do identify with the people. When you're an organization that maybe is multiracial, mm -hmm. um, which SNCC kind of was, mm -hmm. um, what, what's his name, Zell Zellner? How, uh, Bob Zellner. Bob Zellner, who is for a while one of the only white people in his chapter of SNCC, mm. but they were a multiracial organization oh, or that. that was primarily composed of, you know, rural blacks or middle class blacks from the north. Um, mm. But how do you identify with the people? Mm -hmm. um, and that's 
really the highlight of the organizers and uh, organizing chapter. And one thing that I, I talk about a lot, I was talking about it with you the other day, was mm -hmm. Bob Moses talks about um, his strategy of walking around with the ball. And Paige and I talk about this a lot because we work with young people. And, you know, you organize people by bouncing a ball down the street and the kids will come to you and then you'll start building trust uh, mm -hmm. with the adults in their lives. Or you'll organize the kids. Um, I can read it. It says, by bouncing a Bob Moses was once asked how you organize a town. By bouncing a ball, he answered quietly. What? You stand on a street and bounce a ball. Soon all the children come around. You keep on bouncing the ball. Before long, it runs under someone's porch, and then you meet the adults. Um, so that, I think it's a really important chapter in just focusing on the understanding that organizing is, is going to be slow work. Like, mm -hmm. right, these people were there for years. Bob Moses, like Quinn talked about, not in his hometown. Mm -hmm. um, Medgar Evers, you know, when he came back from the war, he didn't plan on being back in Mississippi. Um, that, that way of life was not tolerated by him anymore once he had been exposed to other things or felt like he had put his life on the line for this country that so much devalued his. Um, but yeah, I think organizers should read chapter eight to okay. focus on building relationships. All right, so I'm gonna read chapter two, chapter three, mm -hmm. chapter eight. Got this. <laughs> I'm gonna read the whole book. Sorry, one thing that's also, I had, I'm looking at, my my book's really old and it has all these, like, notes in it. And it's so, it looks so good. Yeah. If you could see it, we'll yeah. post a picture. Tell you, yeah. And yeah. I have, <laughs> I have a post-it here that says, um, it was about the role that organizers had to become in communities that they were, they knew they were organizing these people who would then probably lose their jobs, yeah. become at risk, and so, uh, Charles Payne writes that organizers had to become, I made a, a bulleted list, negotiators, morale boosters, lawyers, teachers, welfare agents, mm -hmm. transportation coordinators, canvassers, public speakers, mm -hmm. all while communicating with people ranging from illiterate sharecroppers to well-off professionals. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's something um, to consider in our organizations where we probably, a lot of us, don't have representation of that gamut of people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that really stands out to me because, and I think that goes back to the thing that we were talking about before, like how do you support people um, when you're asking them to risk so much, right? Like, personally, I think it's unfair, one, we've talked about, to ask people to risk something that I wouldn't risk myself. But then I also know that I would feel uncomfortable risking my life to do something not knowing that I had a support system. And um, previously you mentioned like the beloved community and things like that. Um, but how do you become all of those things? Like, for people who want to do more, right? Like, me as an individual, I can't provide you all of that. Um, but maybe how do I continue? Like, does the book offer guidelines for organizers to continue to build with other people who have different skills so that you could provide, like, you could have this um, support community that can provide all the resources in a variety of means, right? Not just monetary resources, but all sorts of resources. And can do, like, be all those roles that you need within a thriving community. I'm not trying to harp on it, but I, I do feel like that's something that gets overlooked or when people are like, yeah, we need to build, but it's like, build what? How do we do that? And I, I, I talk about this a lot because I find that a lot of like political education, a lot of like political engagement has become so individualized. Like it's, oh, I went over here and I read this book and I'm way smarter than you because mm -hmm. I can say intersectionality and I know misogynoir mm -hmm. is a word, right? Like, and I know what that means, but, and then I went out of the street and then I like shut down the street and I got arrested oh, I'm so mm -hmm. radical, but it's not this really, like, engaging, like, this long-term, like, building community with other people, um, with other people who have different opinions and supporting. It's, like, that level of support that I think is really, really lost. Sorry, that was a rant, but... Um, <laughs> an important rant. <laughs> I think I think at that time, I don't know, just briefly, like, I think at that time, SNCC was really challenging, and black people, well, folks, again, this is rural black people in Mississippi were really challenging... Um, like what community was and what were the systems that they had that were that were part of their oppression. And one thing that I remember from this, Bob Moses, um, he's, he's going down the street and he sees a young person and he needs someone to type his memos and he goes, and I think, I don't, I don't remember the direct quote from the, um, no, page, again, you said it's a big book, but the young person <laughs> says, or he, Bob Moses asks, what can you do? And he goes, well, I can sing songs. And he's like, well, I need you to type this letter for me and he's like well I don't know how to use a typewriter and Bob was like okay we'll come type it and so then there was mm -hmm. really like an investment in building up leadership mm -hmm. and even if they didn't have mm -hmm. the skills mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, the way I see, I way I see myself, it's like, it's almost like digging at the sand, mm. right? Mm. Like continuously, like grabbing more and more. Like it's very, and it's very hard to do that simultaneously, like while like being at the top, right? Dragging stuff up at the top, catching more sand. I'm like, I'm mm. allow other folks to catch. Like, what does it look like for me to pour myself into people mm-hmm. in such a way where it's not necessarily like reduplicating myself, but like you're reduplicating some form of like organizers. Like, if you actually believe that, like, if it's just me and us, is it can never be sustainable. And like, even that, it's like everyday folks who haven't had access to certain types of things should be the ones like leading this work then you have to become very serious about like developing people. And that means you got choices to make. Mm. You're like, you could either be writing a book or you could be doing this. You could be, uh, like you get like to really like put the type of investment that nobody's ever put into our communities. It means you got to sacrifice a lot of stuff. Um, One thing I always think about is like most people a significant amount of black people in this country never go to school past 18. Mm-hmm. That's it mm-hmm. in this country. 18. So they, they're 45 years old. Mm-hmm. They've primarily never been in a space with somebody who's like really invested in them. You might get some quick stuff to do something on the job, but it's not like seriously like investing in you to like be like bold in your community, have analysis, do all these different types of things. For most folks, an organizer is the first person outside of like this formalized shitty structure that most people go through. But somebody's like really investing in them. And it's probably somebody who, I mean, it could be somebody who's had more access and more framework than anybody they've ever met in their life. Mm-hmm. And people are excited about that. Mm-hmm. They're like, I, this, I, my taxes have been raised and I don't understand why. Some mm-hmm. people are appealing, blah, blah. What's happening out here? Um, and for somebody to come and spend some significant time and pour into them so they can do that on a broader level is extremely refreshing. Um, so people are craving for this stuff. Mm. Um, one of the questions, I was one first thing I'm thinking about is like, what's the evidence that people would think that a lot of the civil rights organizers would be anti-integration? Like most of them went to white schools. Mm-hmm. They fought in armies that they were trying to integrate. Uh, the like reason, Evers, I mean, yeah. like, like the reason that there were there were more Southern white people in SNCC was because black and white Southerners had a Southerners had a lot more in common than uh, than we might have an imagination mm-hmm. of them having, right? Like especially mm-hmm. uh, poor whites or working class whites. They're there's something about being southern that I would I don't I wouldn't say unifying but created there was some sort of likeness in that. Mm-hmm. But even when you talk about like, so one of the f- things I think about like the, the some of the organizing that happened a little bit more broadly like SNCC and Black Panther Party and say to Oakland and and uh, I don't know who we talking about this in New York so like Huey Newton wasn't like he was organizing with white people. Mm-hmm. He came out of San Francisco State. He was like, that was like the way they rocked there. New York Black Panthers weren't doing that. Mm-hmm. They like coming out of a black nationalist tradition, Marcus Garvey. It wasn't like we're but it's kumbaya stuff. So it's like, <laughs> part of it is like, does the culture you grow up with, with tell you like this is an acceptable form of organizing? Um, are we binded together in some form of fashion? It may be strategy, it may be principle. Uh, but um, most of these folks, many of their relationships um, were multicultural, and it wasn't just, like these these folks who were organizing Stokely was coming out of Howard University, and, uh, you know. And I was just gonna bring up like when Stokely, who came up through SNCC, was in Mississippi when he first said uh, "Black Power," right, mm-hmm. and even. He would his understanding of black power was more nuanced than what the, the than the story the media told and what 
black nationalists then latched on to was being anti-white. And that was not mm. what Stokely Carmichael would say he meant by black power. Mm. When Stokely Carmichael said black power, I think it was in Atlanta then, that they kind of took on a, the Atlanta uh, SNCC took on a more, not militant, but anti-integrationist um, approach and that's when SNCC I think let go of all their white members mm -hmm. um, and I know Zellner right he was he was talking he had proposed organizing um, a campaign because Stokely Carmichael's thing was white poor white people need to organize poor white people mm -hmm. um, and so I think Zellner that's his name Zellner yeah I'm sorry um, had <laughs> ally goals <laughs> 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 Sorry. <Yeah. laughs> had proposed a campaign to organize poor white people in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And they said no because that was at the time when they decided to let go of white people from mm -hmm. SNCC. Um, and, you know, it wasn't, there's no one to blame for that. That was the natural trajectory of the movement, right? If when, after the Voting Rights Act have passed, all, after the, you've had federal support, um, and yet there's still this oppression by the state. It was a natural progression. The book kind of, from what I've heard, admittedly I haven't read the whole thing, right? So I'm not as informed. Um, one thing that I've heard after the election of Trump is people talking about, oh, we need to have mass meetings, mass meetings, mass meetings, right? Um, can you explain like what, why the book kind of raises mass meetings and what the goal might be and maybe how we can use those lessons for today like what people who are trying to organize these post-trump or like post-election pre-trump taking office um kind of mass meetings like what can they learn from this book as they prepare for those who's advocating for these men like who's saying what <laughs> <laughs> uh, give us names yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so i actually work for an organization called people's action yeah. um and we actually are in the middle of a three-day conference, and so literally the whole goal, like a massive part of the goal um, of the conference was to bring on affiliates to, or start organizing mass meetings just like within their local areas and kind of having, like having these meetings happen consistently um, from now, like through the first hundred days. And so it is a narrative that I've personally heard a lot. Um, Maybe it's not necessarily in the mainstream media, but because I work there, so it's like 40 hours a week where people are like, oh, we need to have mass meetings. Um, we need to really be bringing people in. And like I said, I was just at a conference, so they were that, that was the main ask of the conference. Like, will you commit to holding space and like planning these mass meetings from now through the, the first 100 days? Yeah, I don't know. They had regular mass meetings in Greenwood, but, and you know, a big part of them was a feeling, was cultivating the feeling you get at church through the music, right? A lot of the music that came over, came through, came from that movement. Mm -hmm. A lot of church music too, a lot of scripture, um, like Fannie Lou Hamer speaking, mm -hmm. right? But um, from my understanding, those mass meetings felt the way they did because of the personal one-to-one -one organizing that was also happening, and they were all part of um, something pretty spectacular. So are you saying it needs I, to I be kind of both? It's not just a matter of like getting people in the room, it's a matter of building relationships and then having people come in the room, or? I'm just I don't know, to... I don't know, maybe yeah. you get, maybe that's, I don't know. We're just friends. I'm not saying either of those things, I just, I'm just I mean, we glam. I mean, this stuff was not fun. No, for yeah, you know yeah. What I'm saying? Like, it's like it wasn't fun for people. Um, when we think we're just gonna like replay what happened in like 1964 mm -hmm. in any fashion, some of it is not like disrespectful. Other ways, it's like impractical, mm -hmm. based upon like the way the churches evolved, mm -hmm. community churches, things of that nature, and just different like. These organizers in SNCC, they would count on the FBI, the federal government, like, initially having their back when the Klan would attack one of their people. It's, it's, um, 
the way the the I'm so I organized in Birmingham for a while, mm. like some of the most historic mass meetings were at 16th Street Baptist Church. Mm. I've been in 16th Street Baptist Church a lot of times. It's hard for me. It's spaces that I've been in organizing where I'm like, even if we wrote about it, it'd be hard for me to describe it. Mm-hmm. Like, what was happening, the feeling, why people got engaged at that moment. Like, it's hard for me to describe New Orleans night four when I got there. Mm-hmm. Like, even if I showed you pictures, it still mm-hmm. wouldn't do, like, what it means for me as, like, a 19-year-old black kid moving in there. Um, and... One thing it's been hard for me to do is like truly um, put myself in the mass meeting. Just imagine the mass meeting after the bombing at 16th Street Baptist Church, right? Four little girls blown away um, in the church. Um, and they decide that like we're going to continue moving with the stuff anyway. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's just some of the stuff just like. Yeah, and also I think what momentum means to us is different. Like in my to my fifth graders, so for two weeks, we just focused on the Montgomery bus boycott. We focused on what the committees were, John Robinson. Like we just focused on in detail, probably more than most adults have. Like my fifth graders, just the Montgomery bus boycott. Mm-hmm. And then for two weeks following that, we just wrapped up last week. We just looked at the Children's Crusade in Birmingham, a different city in Alabama. But nationally, that th- that was seven seven years after the Montgomery bus boycott, mm-hmm. and the reason that King or uh, Reverend Bevel really felt that they needed to pull children out was because they hadn't felt a victory, they hadn't a national optics victory in seven years, and then so I, I think that is something to highlight, not in reference to this book specifically, but you know and because it was at the same time, mm-hmm. but that our, 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 ex, our expectation for how quick things should happen or how things should feel based on, you know, amount of time that passes is not really comparable yeah. to what was happening. Then. Mm-hmm. Mass meetings might actually be counterproductive to, like, the work we want to do. Mm. Examples like the Night King, right before he died, he was supposed to be going to speak at this church, right, it was a major meeting. And he couldn't make it. He was, like, tired or sick or whatever. The crowd was livid. They were, mm-hmm. like, livid that this guy mm-hmm. couldn't be there. Um, it was a massive amount of folks. And um, the type of, like, celebrity and, char- and charisma sometimes to, like, sustain these mm-hmm. this type of... Mm-hmm. We're going to pack it out, 600 people, 700 people. Traditionally for like long-term organizing, that's not sustainable. That's like, especially if like you counter in like the charismatic, like grassroots deep work. Mrs. Johnson, that may be difficult to like be sustainable. Um, so it, I think it really depends on like how you're trying to grow. Um, Snick through a lot uh, as people felt less scared of, uh, you know, the KKK and other groups mm-hmm. Um, White Citizens Council. Um, <laughs> the beer that you serve on this show. Uh, we liquored them up, y'all. Sorry. Uh, challenging their safety. Um, and as the organization grew, of course, you have more people. And the older SNCC, this, fo- this chapter focuses on how the older um, SNCC members kind of felt some type of way about the newer SNCC members who weren't, who blatantly told them no. This earlier on in the movement, in the earlier half of the decade, mm-hmm. um, when they were asking him to get out to help them register voters. Um, and now that it felt safer, they're like, well, now you're joining SNCC. Um, and one thing that I, a line that I'm pulling out now is the basic metaphor of solidarity became nation and not family. And so that's mm. when what we talked about earlier, the idea of the beloved community began to shift. Um, and so whatever the... From the author's point of view, whatever the moral or social mm-hmm. anchors that that held down SNCC, um, those started to shift it out of people who had personal interests and self-interest. One person, I don't know if it was in this chapter, I don't remember, but he talks about uh, Charles Evers, who's Medgar Evers' brother, who many in the in that time described as an opportunist. I don't have an opinion. Um, but in the book, uh, 
uh, touches on the ways that people perceived him to be that after Medgarver's assassination. Mm. Um, and one thing that sticks out to me in that chapter is Ella Baker, just uh, going back to Ella Baker's belief in that organizations should be small um, and should be, I've been talking about cells a lot recently, but from that comes from communist party and Marx talks about mm. cells, right? And mm -hmm. cells, that organizations should be small and that they should be cells so that, and the idea of a cell is that you're one organization as a cell, but that you can rely on other organizations, other cells, uh, to support you when you need them to in big actions or for jail support or for whatever that it is that you're working on, but that when an organization grows too big, it runs into the challenges that SNCC ran into. Mm. And she said this before mm -hmm. they ran into these challenges in the later half of the decade. Mm. Quinn's reading the chapter now. <laughs> That's like my students every morning. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll say t two things. One is that um, they talk about how the involvement of outsiders in the movement mm -hmm. became unstable. And I always try to be clear with, like, other organizers about, like, what they're trying to do over, like, the next five, seven, ten years. Some people aren't trying to, so, for example, some people aren't trying to live in Chicago. That poses significant ramifications on their work here. Like, people smell it a mile away. It means the level of, like, if you're trying to move, you make judgments about campaigns, work, where you live in, all these different types of things. And for me, the type of the vision that folks have means you got to stick a plot and really do work in a space for a really long time mm -hmm. um, and be extremely committed. Part of your commitment allows folks who going to be there for the long haul to trust you mm -hmm. enough. This is one of the worst things to know that you get involved in a fight that somebody doesn't plan on finishing. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And you, and you also, just, like, you're born and raised in Chicago. I'm born and raised in Chicago. How do you feel about, like, Chicago transplants, people that have moved from other cities to come do organizing work here? I mean, I, 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 my, part of my background is going to places where I don't live and didn't plan on living doing organizing work. We moved back here, back here around the same time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I lived in Birmingham, Alabama. I lived in Boston, Massachusetts to organize a few other places. But, um... I just think that, um, but when I would go to these places, I would play like significant homage. I knew the limits of my work. Mm -hmm. I knew I wasn't planning on being there. I was just like honest about like what I was, what type of fight I was prepared mm -hmm. for. Um, when I, I keep going back to New Orleans, the type of work that residents wanted in New Orleans meant I would have had to drop out of school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was clear about that. I was like, the, what you want, Mrs. Johnson, mm -hmm. means I got to drop out of school. Now, there was some, it was, there was one guy who went down with me. He dropped out. Mm -hmm. He dropped out of school. That was the type of commitment he was willing to make. Wow. And, and even if you live there and naturally have proximity, like drop yeah. out of work or yeah, yeah. give up your employability. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's the history of this. Like, these yeah. with people dropping out of school. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I've, it, I was, like, I'm at a place where, like, I'm in it in Chicago for, like, the long fight. Mm -hmm. And people may not be there, but it's like, you got to be honest with communities. You got to be honest with that. Because they, it, we can't have unstable work and efforts and visions. Um, and, you know. And even within that, like, this chapter, they call it tribalism, which was the problem at that moment. Right, like it wasn't even after the the expulsion of the white people, and after many people went on to run for office, like uh, what's his name Bond, ran for office, and some of the transplants, um, there was a sort of tribalism that that that's what the author called it. I don't know, Bob Moses, someone calls it in here. I don't remember manifested during that time where it's like, well, I'm. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a teacher, right? And te teachers and preachers, just to be clear, like weren't really a part. They were very critical of SNCC mm -hmm. at that time. But you had that was just the example I used that came to my head. But um, that at, at this time there was this is mine, this is mine. Instead of prior to that was 
uh, that we are in, and I don't know if I'm romanticizing it, but we're in this black struggle regardless of, yes, I, I don't agree with you on this year, but we're in this movement together. And mm -hmm. perhaps it was the size of the organization that grew or the, the author, what he, he, he I don't want to say blames, but what he cites it to is the rise in black power and what black mm -hmm. power meant for people. Mm -hmm. um, it's always a Morehouse. Because Carmichael is making speeches right now at this point on behalf of SNCC. Mm. You know, but it's like these folks who like were in the room doing the work, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And, um, and what that means is that if you're going to do the work, you may be written out of history. Mm. And to be clear, like, Stokely Carmichael was doing the work yeah. in the early part of the decade, right? Mm -hmm. The media really latched on to black power. Um, I mean, but, or, like... But he had been, or he was a door knocker, he was a canvasser, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, yeah. put like this. Um, if people are under the perception that this, so this is King versus Baker, like the mm -hmm. perception that my oration will get the community organized. That's not, that's maybe motivated, maybe hopeful, maybe inspired, but that's not, in, that's not investing in people to like real, real, real capacity. And the problem is the, like, it's always interesting when we, people talk about organizing in Chicago and stuff like that. I don't know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, their perspectives are different. I'm like, y'all don't know what y'all talking about. Mm -hmm. And uh, you say that about me. About what? <laughs> <I'm> just <kidding. laughs> so I'm just like, I mean, it's just like the the uh, people's belief about like how this thing gets done has been uh, it's it's been really skewed. Um, and it continues to like recycle itself, mm -hmm. um, and we would think we would learn, um, but I think I think part of it is like the spoils, the victories. Person is gonna be able to teach about this at a university later, and mm -hmm. you know, run this, but get the somebody from the, from several movements will be elected to office. All these different mm -hmm. types of things. The spoils go to folks who carry the narrative, who tell it. Uh, who are the orators? Mm -hmm. uh, like King's inner circle will tell you that he was considering running for president of the United States. President of the United States. Mm -hmm. This is what he was thinking about. Um, and you know, it's these are like these were these. You know, that's the type of that's the type of elevation that you get. When you're seen as like the the messenger of mm -hmm. uh, people who may not even have given you that, <laughs> right. you don't represent me. I don't know you from. I've never met you. Mm. Uh, but people's perspective perception is that you speak for a whole conglomerate, and you may never cross Woodlawn. Mm. Mm -hmm. And the shift too was that this movement was focused in the rural South. And then in the late 60s, like with the riots, Black Panther Party eventually started was in the urban north. Um, and so what that means in terms of strategy and how you, what are the issues that people are actually facing? What does racism look like? Is it more nuanced than it is in the south? Is different. Uh, and I think that was a struggle. Not a struggle, but something that they also had to come mm -hmm. to head with. Mm -hmm. uh, well, y'all are giving this book some justice yeah. and it's funny because it's like i don't know if this podcast is is making us want to read the book or or being like oh we already we already got we got the lowdown from y'all because you are just telling the whole story there's lots of um, but there's yeah 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 people were not talking about especially totally there's so much i would be just like i need to read it yeah i gotta read it i feel badly like i'm part of it like not remembering the names of the people and the, the what's that one family in this book who um they're, they lived the life of resistance, right? Like they carry. There's a the the matriarch of the family, the the grandmother would carry a gun with her, um, would frequently threaten <laughs> white people, and uh, just did everything to do, to 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 live her life as freely as she possibly could yeah, within yeah. the constraints of living in, as a sharecropper, right, mm -hmm. in rural Mississippi. And so, I, if if not for this strategy, I recommend. The McGee's. That's the family, right? That's her name. The McGee's. Laura McGee. 
and she was 73 when she's interviewed in this book. Um, I'm trying to find, think if I can find. Uh, like she, too. she went to go pick up her. Her, her family was always being locked up. Like every, they had, they just sustained tons of arrests. And she gets there, and she beats the shit out of this officer who won't let her see her kid. Like blood bulging from his eye. <laughs> and she said, "There's, she's like, I'm there to get my son." And they're mm -hmm. like, "No." And she says, "She says the hell I can't. I come down here to get my son, Jake. He says you can't go in there." She says, "Bop, hit him right in the eye." <laughs> Right in the eye, as hard as I've ever seen anybody hit in my yes. life. I remember just like a movie. Blah, 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 blah. She's not missing a leg. Boom, boom, boom. Every time she Damn. hits him, his head hits the door. Damn. Damn. <laughs> Damn. And then, <laughs> yeah, so there, uh, it's for the stories of like this, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's it's not the Bob Moses, it's not the Fanny Humor, it's not the Ella Baker, but the people who made the Mississippi Freedom Struggle what it is are the the people like the McGee's. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and I think this book uplifts them and mm. so mm. Um, especially if you're from Chicago uh, like Quinn and I are Dominique is you probably have heritage in Mississippi mm -hmm. and even if your family wasn't in SNCC or in the SCLC or in NAACP like they mm. were a part of that uh, Mississippi freedom struggle um, mm. probably right just mm. their lives were yeah. mm -hmm. the fact that they made they, they it here, here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah unfortunately we've run out of time um, so we have to wrap up now um, but to close, is there, do you have a favorite quote that you would like listeners to kind of take away with them from this episode? Tess, you want to go first? You seem sure, ready. Sure, at the end of chapter eight. End of chapter eight. Okay. We also have to consider simple persistence. Our collective imagery of the movement does not include George Green returning to talk to some frightened farmer for the 10th time or Mary Lane taking the registration test voter registration test 11 times before she's allowed to pass or Donaldson and Cobb returning at night to a town they were run out of that day over overemphasizing the movement's more dramatic features we undervalue the patience and its sustained effort the slow respectful work that made the dramatic moments possible Thanks. Damn. Yeah. Quinn. there go my people I must hurry and catch up to them before I'm their leader. We'd like to thank our special guest, Tess and Quinn, for uh, coming on with us today to talk about I've Got the Light of Freedom by Charles M. Payne. This is another episode of The Lit Review. Tune in next time. <laughs>